0: Today, you might say that we sort of begin the process of, of landing this ship that has been 2 Samuel. The last, the last four chapters of this book uh, have given a, given a few scholars pause or even filled them with apathy toward these last four chapters. Some look at them and say uh, they're an interruption to the flow. Uh, in one sense, if assuming you know what the author' trying to do, uh, you can actually read from Second Samuel chapter 20, skip the last four verse chapters, and then go straight to First Kings chapter one, and the story seems to flow quite nicely. Uh, but on a more and, and, and then when you take into account that some of these don't even seem to be stories of chronological value. Like this, what we'll read today doesn't happen chronologically in this place. This is just something that it seems the author was just like, oh, yeah, I forgot once. Uh, but on careful examination of these four chapters, we see a pretty uh, intentionally laid out closing of 2 Samuel. Uh, these last four chapters have six uh, six things going on in them, and they're all in these sort of, Circles And so, from chapter 21 to 24, what you get is uh, this sort of A, B, C, C, B, A layout of the closing of 2 Samuel. So, these four chapters begin with the sin of the king, of a king, and the impact that sin has on the nation. And chapter 24 ends with the sin of a king... And the impact on God's nation. If you move in from those, there are stories or accounts of the faithfulness and uh, heroism—not of the king, but of many of the king's men. The loyalty of many of the king's men, and it—it'll have this account of many, not just the king's victories, but his followers and his mighty men's victories. And then at the end, there's another recounting of uh, the faithfulness of the king's men. And then right in the middle are then two songs of David recounting the faithfulness of God throughout David's reign. And so you've got these two stories of sin And its repercussions to accounts of the faithful men who served King David, and then to songs. And so you can't look at this and say, oh, he just kind of threw these things together. It's just an appendix. You can skip over it. There seems to be something that God is speaking through the author through these last chapters. So today we'll look at the first of these six sections. uh, And even as we read it, you may not pick it up as we read it, but this. Section These 14 verses are all about God's mercy, God's covenant mercy. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them, On the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I I know most of you are probably thinking God's mercy, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a passage about God's mercy. And it's important for us to see that. And so we'll just dive straight in. Uh, We're going to see at the beginning of this the clarity of God's covenant mercy, the cost of God's covenant mercy, the look of God's covenant mercy, and the feel of God's covenant mercy. So first of all, we look at this passage. How does this passage show us the clarity of covenant mercy? We're told in very, the very first verse, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. And the author, in case you miss it, he adds at the end, year after year. It's intentional. Uh, again, Uh, This wording is so that you don't misunderstand this to assume this is what's happening next chronologically. This is just something that happened sometime in the reign of King David. We really don't know when, other than we do have one clue that we can say it happened sometime after this. And that clue is David's commitment to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son because David had, if you remember, about halfway through his reign, he had reached out and brought Mephibosheth to live in Jerusalem, to care for him, to bring him in, to treat him as if he was one of David's own sons because of an oath that he and Jonathan had made to each other, because of a covenant that they had committed to one another. And so we know that this famine happened sometime after David had moved Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. But other than that, we really don't know when this occurred. We do know that it lasted for three years. A three-year famine. Can you imagine a three-year famine? After the first year, you might think, well, there's natural explanations to this. You know, this is probably global warming. You know, this is probably, you know, everyone, all the talking heads probably had a theory about why there was a famine. Uh, And so after the first year, you just think, well, this is just, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, But then the second year comes and there's still a famine. The second year, it's not just unfortunate. Now you're starting to get a little concerned, Two years of famine. The talking heads can't. They have, they have more theories about why this is happening uh, than you have uh, grain in your silos. And then year three. And hopefully after three years of a natural disaster, hopefully after three years, you would think that perhaps God's people would start to say, I wonder I wonder if God might be involved in this. I wonder if there's something more going on. I mean, if God is so sovereign and in control, three years of this, I mean, you know, one year, one year of a, you know, some kind of natural virus. I mean, that's, we can explain that. Two years, that's, that's hard. That's difficult. Three years. At what point do we stop looking at the polar ice caps, and start asking. I wonder. I wonder what God is thinking about us right now. And this is not a passage where I'm going to say, "Hey, America, we need. We just. The America just needs to start praying again. We need to get the Bible back in school." Sorry, I don't know why that guy has a Southern accent. I apologize for that. For everyone who grew up in the South, I did not need to do that, and I am sorry. But. This isn't a passage for us to break out the the cross and the flag and say what the country needs is to get back to God. No, but we should as God's people, as God's people, should we not seek the face of the Lord? As God's people, shouldn't we be seeking God and saying we, not we a nation, we who claim the name of Christ, should we be more repentant over how we have treated others over how we have treated God over how we have treated the church over how we have treated the gospel are there things that we can look at in our own hearts in our own lives that we could say you know if this was because of sin it would be just like if this pandemic was just because of this congregation's sin like could we say well that's not just no, we would only be able to say that's that's justice. In fact, it it seems like it's pretty merciful that that's all that's happened. It's interesting. It's only we only hear about David, who's moved to seek the face of God. All of Israel should have been moved to seek the face of God because uh, even if. In the New Covenant, we can't look at these things and say, hey, there's probably a correlation. In the Old Covenant, they could. There were even warnings given in Deuteronomy and Leviticus about what would happen if God's people would abandon God's covenant. If God's people would turn their backs on God's law, he promises, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land will not yield its increase, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. These are the specific consequences of a people who have walked away from their God, who have turned their backs on God's law. And so David seeks the face of the Lord. It's a language of, of humility. It's the language of uh, asking for uh, a meeting with a king or a master it's going it's the lesser going to the the greater he seeks the face of the lord how did david seek the face of the lord well most likely through the proper covenantal means that were available to him at the time so he would have gone with sacrifices he would have gone to the temple he might have sought the priest he was he would have followed the means that God had provided to approach the mercy seat of the Lord. And the Lord responds. The Lord tells him what is going on. The blood, there is blood guilt on Saul in his whole household because he had put the Gibeonites to death. Now, before we move on to answer the obvious questions about the Gibeonites and Saul's blood guilt, we don't want to fly past The mercy of clarity. God tells David what his sin is. God tells David what has happened that has harmed the covenant relationship between God and his people. And maybe that doesn't sound like mercy to you, but I assure you the opposite of it is the most merciless. And if I could just use an example, probably not from anyone's life in this room, has anyone ever been in a relationship where you know you've probably done something wrong, but the person you've done something wrong to isn't being very forthright about it? You can sense coldness you can sense even irritation you can sense that this person has probably stopped talking to you for at least two hours and you're realizing it's dangerously quiet in the house and there's no help being offered for you to figure out what it is you've done wrong I know that probably every husband is cautiously nodding in their hearts, at least, that they have experienced this. And you know what, guys? Let's be fair. Several wives are also nodding because they do not have the corner on being petty or, well, you should know why I'm upset. Many men do the same thing. Is it better to be left in the dark and treated poorly and have no idea why you're treated poorly? Isn't it a mercy to just be told what you did so you can deal with it? It is a mercy of God that he told David what is going on. David says, why is this famine happening? God says, this is why it's happening. That's mercy. Maybe we don't like that kind of mercy. Maybe we would prefer A quiet evening, even if it's a quiet evening of the cold shoulder. Maybe we would prefer to just not deal with it. But dealing with it is where the mercy begins. Knowing about our sin is actually how a relationship grows. I mean, if we keep going into silent treatments, you just bounce off of it and the relationship doesn't even get any stronger. God is merciful in showing us. God does not prefer even now to keep you in the dark. Do you have an avenue like David had of seeking the face of God? Is there a covenantal path that God has given you to come before him and seek his face? Well, of course you do. You have his holy word, the completed word of God right there in your lap. Uh, you have uh, his covenantal sacraments through recalling your baptism coming to the Lord's Supper you have the preached word coming together in worship these are avenues of seeking the face of the Lord that you have available to you every Sunday you can seek the face of the Lord and seek clarity from him and doesn't God continue to reveal himself to his people through these avenues There are times that some of you have texted me or emailed me on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday morning, and they're usually humorous statements. Sometimes I'll get an email saying, you know, you're allowed to preach to other people in the church too. Uh, I've received emails or texts. I'm pretty sure that bugging my house for your illustrations is illegal. And so however you got them into the house, you should come and get them out of the house. This week I was reminded, my wife and I discussed it, and you owe us each a dollar for using our week's conversations for every illustration you had this week. This is God's covenant mercy. This isn't me having insight into any of your hearts or your souls or your households or your conversations. This is God using his ordinary means of grace To show his face to you, to show you your sin and draw you to himself. What a beautiful gift of covenant mercy clarity of our sin brings. We cannot ignore the cost of covenant mercy, however. So who were these Gibeonites? The author gives us a little bit of background. He gives a refresher. The Gibeonites were not Israelites. They were uh, a group of Amorites who lived in Israel. It's not just that they lived in Israel. It's that uh, they had made a treaty with Joshua and Israel. Actually, even that's not strong enough. It's not that they made a treaty with Joshua and Israel. It's that Joshua and Israel had made a covenant with the Gibeonites, They had sworn in the name of the Lord to live at peace with the Gibeonites. Now, living at peace with them wasn't just turn a blind eye, let boys be boys, girls be girls, let the Gibeonites do their thing, we'll do our thing. Living at peace was, I will use what God has given me for your favor, for your protection. Living at peace under covenant meant we are for you and you are counted as one of us. Now, how this covenant came about is sort of interesting, not important to the story other than it's odd until you add that Psalm 15 passage that uh, a person is holy, a person can enter the presence of God who keeps his word even when it hurts. Because the Gibeonites were a clever people when Joshua entered the land. They had learned of Joshua's power and the, and, the, and the Israelites' abilities in battle, and so the Gibeonites came up with a plan. They decided to leave their town of Gibeah and march out and meet Joshua. But when they did, they put on their old ratty clothes, they put on their old tennis shoes, and they they stopped, uh, everyone skipped their hair appointment for a month, they stopped shaving, they grabbed all their three-week-old bread that they were going to throw away, and they put it in their bags. They grabbed old canteens that were breaking so that the wine was running out, and then they went and met Joshua and was like, oh, oh, hello there. We are a people from from far, far away land, uh, and uh, we we don't live anywhere near here. You seem like good people. We seem like good people. We should make a a a, a treaty together that will never hurt each other, ever, 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 ever. And so Joshua and the people, the elders, they decide, yeah, we'll do that. We'll make a covenant with these people. And then after they've made the covenant, they learn that the Gibeonites had lied, that they were just down the road in the very territory that Joshua had been called on by God to empty of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, But they had made an oath in the name of the Lord. If there was sin involved, Joshua and the elders probably should have gone to the Lord to seek. Should we make this oath with them? But they had made an oath. They had covenanted. The language of the Old Testament is they had cut a covenant. They had cut a covenant. It's sort of like when we use language, like when we say... uh, Uh, I'm going to owe them a dollar. You know, Liam and Meyer are going to walk the aisle in June. Uh, They're going to walk the aisle. That's all you have to say. And nobody thinks they're like walking around looking for a long corridor to walk through. We know that walk the aisle means something. There's more than just, there's a specific aisle we're talking about. So when the Bible says they cut a covenant, it assumes that you understand that there were a lot of things involved here. Cutting a covenant meant grabbing some animals and cutting them in half and laying them down and walking through these divided carcasses and saying, this should happen to me if I break my word to you. That's what cutting a covenant was. And they cut a covenant with the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord. To break that covenant is to say God's name cannot be trusted. To go back on their word is to say you can't believe what God says. And that covenant was upheld by Joshua and the Israelites even when they had to defend the Gibeonites against war, against intruders. That covenant was upheld by the tribe of Benjamin in whose territory the Gibeonites dwelled for hundreds of years until King Saul. And then we're told that in, in zeal for the people of God, in zeal for Israel and Judah, he decided to break that covenant and he sought to annihilate, to wipe off the face of the earth, the Gibeonites. And this This covenant breaking displeased the Lord. Saul, the anointed king of God's covenant people, the people who were covenanted by God to be a blessing to the world, Saul sought to exterminate the Gibeonites. And it is this covenant breaking, this abuse of these people who are living in the boundary of God's country, of God's promised land, This utter regard for oaths given in the name of the Lord. This is the sin that brought devastation on the land. And so David goes to the Gibeonites to seek how to make it right. Literally, he asks, how can I make atonement? Kippur. Interestingly, this week, uh, Wednesday was Yom Kippur, was the day of atonement on the Jewish calendar he asks how can i make Kippur? how can i make atonement for this sin so that you might bless the heritage of the lord how do i make this right how do i pay for this wrong the gibeonites show that they're not just uh, outsiders living in the land they actually show that they understand even god's law they say listen it's not we're not after silver or gold god's law it was illegal it was against the law of god to pay a, a price, a, a monetary price for the death of a person. Because an image bearer of God, there's no, there's no amount of money you can set that's the proper price of an image bearer of God. And they recognize that. There's a new movie on Netflix right now called Worth, and I haven't watched it. I've seen the previews, and it just the previews are enough to make me decide, I don't want to watch this. But it imagines the process that uh, evaluators uh, had, must have had to go through to put a dollar amount value on all of the victims of 9-11, does every person who died get the same dollar amount? Does someone get more? Does someone get less? Who And who has the awful job of deciding the value of a life in dollars and cents? The Gibeonites say, this isn't, uh, that's not what we're after. That wouldn't even be appropriate. They also recognize that it's not really on them to exact their own justice. It's really the king has to do this. The the anointed king, the covenant king, has to handle this. And so they express themselves. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in this territory of Israel. This is verses 5 and 6. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. The requirement by the Gibeonites, even as we scratch our heads over it, We scratch our heads harder when we see just how David's like. Okay, I'll do that. And we wonder how is this is this justice? Is this mercy? What is this? Two of Saul's sons, sons of one of Saul's concubines, five of Saul's grandsons are hanged. Literally, impaled. They're hanged, but hanged on stakes. Does this seem too much? Does this seem too barbaric? Is this the Gibeonites showing their pagan roots after all? We would like to think that, but to do that we have to ignore all the times that the author intentionally tells us this happens before the Lord, on the mountain before the Lord. They were hanged before the Lord. Does this violate God's own law that sons were not to be punished for the sins of their fathers? Well, no, when we remember that those laws are about individual sins against individuals. This isn't an individual sin. This is a nation's sin. This is the sin of the Lord's anointed. This is the king drawing God's people into sin against an entire people group. He sought to perform genocide on a people that he had sworn, that his fathers had sworn to live at peace with and to protect. Saul had polluted the land by shedding innocent blood, and Saul had broken covenant with the Gibeonites and caused the entire nation to break covenant with the Gibeonites. And interestingly, justice would have been minimally the entire household of Saul be brought to death for his sin. Minimally, that would have been justice. And so, the fact that there is a specific number chosen, and it's the full, the number of fullness, the number of completeness, seven sons, it's a number that is specifically saying, This is it. This will be the perfect amount, there will not be anything else required. The choice of seven of Saul's offspring instead of all of Saul's offspring speaks of mercy. Does it sound too awful? Is it unsettling? Good. Good. Maybe the scene at Golgotha has become too clean for us. Maybe the cost of God's mercy at Calvary just doesn't move us anymore. Well, then look back farther to the mount of the Lord where seven sons of Saul die for the mercy of God. It should move you. It should Give you pause. It should cause you to say, That's a costly mercy. David asks, How shall I make atonement? Atonement has within it these two ideas about sin one is expiation, and one is propitiation. Expiation is the removal of sin, and we love expiation. Let's get this sin removed so we can move on. Propitiation deals with the satisfaction of the justice deserved by that sin. Propitiation deals with the satisfaction of the law, the satisfaction of God's wrath, his righteous anger over our covenant breaking. There is a cost to atonement. This is what's missing today, this week, in the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, without a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, is purely expiation. It's just, let's just get this sin out and dealt with. Let's just let's move the sin away from us. Just, just take it away, without an understanding that there's a cost Involved. There's a price to be paid for the removal of sin. We want our sins taken away. We don't much like the thought that those sins are going to need to be paid for. And we don't, we definitely don't like to think about the goriness and the stench of what it would take to cover those sins, to pay for those sins. As the writer of Hebrews put it, without the shedding of blood, there's no removal of sin. There is no remission of sin. David understands the cost of covenant mercy. And David also understands what covenant mercy looks like. I love, I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but right smack in the middle of this account, we return to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. We're told, but David spared Mephibosheth. The king spared Mephibosheth in verse 7, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. In other words, this entire passage is about two kings, a covenant breaker and a covenant keeper. Because of this king's commitment, not to Mephibosheth, because of his commitment to Jonathan, Mephibosheth would live. Because of this king's covenant, this man who deserves the justice of God's covenant-breaking law, the law for covenant-breaking, he deserves that justice to be meted out on him, he will live In 1 Samuel 20, 15, we hear some of this covenant between David and Jonathan. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my household. In verse 42, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Mephibosheth lives because of David's covenant, not even his covenant with Mephibosheth, but his covenant with Mephibosheth's father. It's interesting that we just get one verse about that. We hear more about Rizpah, the concubine, and her uh, love for her sons, don't we? Because there's a real sense that we understand just the feeling, the the pathos of covenant mercy. Consider this scene. Here is this woman who spreads out her sackcloth on the mountain, and she's there day after day, night after night. She will not leave. Here are her two sons, her five, I don't know, grandsons, grandnephews. I don't know how you would, but they're all related to her. She can't bring them back, but she can honor them. She can treat them with dignity, not because of whether they deserve it or not, but simply because they're made in God's image, and they deserve, because of that, to be treated with dignity. We're told, that from, we're told that this happened at the barley harvest, beginning of the barley harvest. We know, or at least we will know as soon as I finish this sentence, that the barley harvest starts mid-April. And then we're told... That she stayed vigilant to this task until the first rains fell. This could just mean that the first time it started to rain on them, or it could mean when the rainy season came, because harvests took place before the rain, and then the rains came in mid October. So this could be telling us that from April. To October, Rizpah stayed and honored her sons and her grandsons. And David hears of this, and it moves David to honor them as well. And he gra- gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he gathers up their bones and he has them buried in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. And it's interesting, it's not until the honoring of their bones, it's not until the honoring of these men, at their burial, at the completion of the payment, the famine ends. And you and I, we can't help but think of another mother a thousand years later who sat as her son hanged, impaled, on stakes. And he hanged there because of our covenant breaking. And he hanged there because of his covenant commitment. His covenant commitment to his father the commitment, the, the, the covenant of redemption that, that is that covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that, that commitment that, that Jesus speaks of, that all that the Father has entrusted to me, I will not turn away. I will not lose. We will be spared because He is sacrificed for us. And we need to not pretty up the cross or Calvary or Golgotha. We need to be sobered by the gore and the gruesomeness, the cost of the mercy that God has shown to us. That our sins aren't merely expiated. But Christ has made propitiation for our sins. He bore the wrath of God. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God, his wrath, forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face. I would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. I've spilt his precious blood, trampled on the Son of God, filled with pains unspeakable. I, who yet am not in hell. Jesus speaks and pleads his blood. He disarms the wrath of God. Now my Father's mercies move. Justice lingers into love. There, for me, the Savior stands, shows his wounds, and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. So when God desired to show a more, convincing, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become our high priest forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the price you willingly paid that we would receive mercy from God, your Father. We pray that we would never forget the cost of our mercy, that we would be humbled that as we see what you have paid for our sins we would we would perhaps see in fresh ways the filth of our sin and rather than simply putting our hopes in an expiation that we sin and you take them away, God, might we see the cost that you paid for our sins and be moved by your presence to pursue you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.